The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome to a special edition of the Rebel Alliance podcast. Uh, you're with P. Nate, and uh, I'm not joined by Pudi, nor am I in Garage Mahal. Uh, but this week we have a, a special uh, presentation for you. So this is coming to you live from P. Nate's office. We had a very good friend of the podcast, Pastor Mike Wilkins, who actually joined us for a couple of episodes very early on in uh, the Rebel Alliance endeavor. And he joined us for an eschatology episode uh, that I'd encourage you to go back and listen to. But uh, our, our friend and my mentor, Mike Wilkins, passed away this week. He was the man who mentored me in ministry, uh, the man who, uh, in a lot of ways, is the reason I'm a pastor and in a lot of ways is the reason I am who I am today. So we wanted to just pause and kind of forego our plans this week and uh, put out a special presentation here uh, in honor of Mike. And what you're going to hear is an interview. Uh, it's part of the Conversations series that they do on the local Christian radio station. It's uh, 99.9 Faith FM here in London, and uh, you can find it on their website. But this is a Conversations interview that they did with Pastor Mike Wilkins about his battle with cancer, about his first book, Glory in the Face, about his 30-year ministry at West London Alliance Church, where he mentored me. And this will kind of give you an opportunity to get to know the guy who is very much responsible, uh, not only for my pastoral ministry, but in a lot of ways for Rebel Alliance, because his inspiration and his teaching and his tutelage is what made me the man I am. And I've had a similar sort of effect on Chris Poots that Mike has had on me. So in a lot of ways, this is because of the faithfulness of Mike's uh, ministry. So uh, we just want you to hear this, and I would encourage you to uh, go online and and listen and share this as well at the Faith FM website or share this episode as you normally do. The Rebels will be back with a regular podcast again next week. Uh, We'll be talking about a recent election here in Ontario. Uh, We'll be talking about the Christian Missionary Alliance General Assembly, and we'll be talking about uh, blasphemy laws. So you can look forward to that episode that'll be airing next week. For now, um, I just want to leave this verse that comes to mind. Uh, 2 Timothy is kind of, in a lot of ways, Paul's famous last words. And so Paul is writing to his young uh, student in ministry, Timothy, in 2 Timothy. And uh, these words have just been on my heart since Mike's passing. He says, this is Paul talking in uh, chapter 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
And so this uh, episode is just uh, in honor of Mike, who did fight the good fight and taught others to fight alongside him and after him. Uh, He has finished the race and he's kept the faith. So this is for Mike, who is a wonderful example to me of a wonderful husband, father, pastor, and a man who gave up his life for the cause of the growth of God's kingdom. So enjoy this and we'll see you again next week. Welcome to Conversations here on Faith FM. Come join us as we listen in on conversations with artists, authors, pastors, and people whose lives have been changed by God. Here's your host, Marion. Over the years, one name kept coming up as a potential guest for this show. He was the pastor of a church here in London for years, but was having significant health struggles. When his name came up yet again a few months ago, we made sure to book him quickly. And to be honest, after reading his bio... I wish I had invited him years ago already. I'm so happy to meet you, Mike Wilkins. Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. I absolutely love your humor and how you think and process things, not only in your bios, but also on your blogs and your new website. And we'll talk about those later and direct people to them. Okay. You were a pastor here in London for a long time. Where did you minister? At uh, West London Alliance Church. How many years were you in London? 33. Now let's give the church a plug. Where exactly is it? It's on Wonderland Road, south of Sarnia Road and north of Oxford. Now the times of service? We have a 9.15 and an 11 a.m. service on Sunday mornings. Now you're still at West London, but you're technically not the pastor there now. Why is that? Because as of 2012, I became quite ill and I still am. Let's get a feel of who you were before, in your own words, your nasty case of terminal cancer. (laughs) Where are you from? I grew up in Brockville, Ontario, on the St. Lawrence River. Now, were your family Christians? They weren't, but they have become believers, and it happened about the same time as it happened for me. I was 15 years old. My parents were mid-40s. And we all had a similar experience, which uh, led us to take the Bible much more seriously than we had. We were good, God-fearing, church-going people, but didn't really have a personal attachment to God. So what happened? Well, a man uh, retired from his career in science in Ottawa, showed up at our church and asked uh, our minister if uh, he could do a lecture series on a weeknight through the winter. And my parents went to that. I didn't. I was 15 years old. But it became apparent as my uh, dad especially was passing on what he was learning from this brilliant guy that uh, this was a man with more degrees than I'd ever heard of, most educated man I'd ever met. And he took the Bible way more seriously than anybody we ever met. So uh, week by week, my dad would tell me what the man talked about. And it gave me a curiosity about the Bible. And I said to myself at 15, If I ever get some free time, I'm going to begin reading the Bible. Shortly after that, winter skiing would be my very favorite thing. I broke my leg very badly, and so I had to drop out of a number of extracurricular activities. I had a whole lot of free time. I thought, oh yeah, free time. So I became a Bible reader as I was turning 16 years old. Wow. And how did you turn to Christ? Well, without instruction, 
I was still going to this church. So we love the minister. We love the whole experience, but we didn't understand the gospel. But I was figuring it out. This man had motivated me by example to read the Bible. And one night at bedtime, I was reading in Romans and came to a couple of sentences that said, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us will give account of ourselves to God. That was the supplier of the missing ingredient. I had known from infancy that Jesus died on the cross for sins, but I had the notion that when it all comes down to it, I'm going to have to provide God with proof that I've done more good than bad so that the good would cancel out the bad. That left me wondering, why did Jesus die on the cross for sins? And that night, I began to sense the need. I realized if I'm giving account to God, there's all kinds of things that I can't give a good explanation for. I was 16 years old. I was just growing up and getting ahead of myself, looking forward to adulthood and all that. And then suddenly I was there in my bedroom all by myself thinking, what I need is a savior. And I know who that is. So in a makeshift sort of way, I asked God to apply to my life what Jesus had done on the cross. I just had a great sense of being heard and being forgiven. And then uh, six months later, I stumbled onto a youth group. This is 1971. It was the time of the Jesus people. He said, hey, have you been saved? And I didn't know what they meant. So, well, have you been born again? I said, I don't think I know what that is. And so they explained what it is. And I was able to say, oh, well, if that's what that is, then yes. Last November, I was, what do you call it again? Born again? Yeah, that's happened to me. That is so So they walked me backwards into my experience and explained (laughs) what that was. That is so cool. I love God stories where it's God doing it. Yeah, it's a marvelous thing. I love it. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, you went to university. You're a pastor now, so I'm just going to jump forward. You did go to university to become a pastor, right? No, no, no. Not at all. My best friend was the son of a veterinarian. The vet would take his son, John, and me out on calls. So we'd go off to farms and check out rabid cows and all that. And John and I both just were really enamored with the whole idea of becoming a veterinarian. So he and I, that is, uh, I and my best friend, went off to the University of Guelph, enrolled in the biology program. It became obvious to me by the end of first year that as much as I really like dogs and cats, and the lifestyle of a veterinarian. I was a terrible science student. And so as a matter of survival, I dropped out of science and went into English literature. I did that so I wouldn't flunk out. (laughs) (laughs) You made a good choice, though, because you have a way with words. Well, thank you. (laughs) Now, how old were you when you met your future wife? We were both 18 years old. I was just finishing first year university coming to terms with the fact that I need to change courses fast. And she was actually uh, six months younger than I still is, of course, but uh, was still in high school. And we met at a Christian conference, a weekend conference. Oh, very nice. Now, I read some things that Debbie liked about you, and I'm (laughs) quoting. His quick wit, his thick blonde hair, his serious commitment to Christ, and his absolute disinterest in ever becoming a pastor. (laughs) So? All that's true, yes. So when I was uh, just falling in love with my girlfriend, and uh, for the three years that we were finishing up university degrees and getting prepared to get married, so when we got married, I had conceded the point to her that the church was an indispensable part of family life. So as soon as we settled down as newlyweds, we were going to go shopping for a church. 
I was not excited about the idea of a lifetime commitment to an actual church, but Deb was a church girl and had that concern. The fact that I didn't want to be a pastor fit in with the fact that I'm not all that excited about any particular local church. And the reason really was that I was getting some attention from a guy at the university who was part of a campus discipleship ministry. And the change he had on me, the the effect he had on me from personal attention, just dazzled me in terms of how it changed my thinking in life, how helpful it was to have a fellow five years older that was giving me time, but gave me a vision for that kind of life. So in my very early 20s, we were married at 22, I had become convinced that personal discipleship is where it's at. And church is just kind of going through important motions. So that was me at 22. And then God had a big impact on me in a lot of ways. And by the time I was 28, I wanted nothing more than to become the pastor of a church. Oh, my. And the difference between the six years is that I continued to get gripped by the idea that investing time and energy in the life of a younger believer is a really worthwhile investment. And I got offered a job at a church, at the church we were going to in Toronto, as the minister of discipleship and the the university ministry guy, but came to see after shadowing him for a year that he has the best discipleship job in the world because a pastor, especially the pastor of a small church that he is the sole pastor of, can disciple anyone he chooses to by setting up a ministry for that age group or that demographic or just investing the time in the individual. So discipleship was sort of my orientation, and I thought, I hope the Lord gets me a church because I could devote my life to the thing I love from that position in a unique way. I think people listening today are kind of saying, never say never. You weren't <laughs> going to be a pastor, and then it you landed up being a pastor well, yeah. for 31 years at the same church. Now, that's kind of rare, isn't it? It's very rare, less rare now than when I started. But when I started, so I'm 30 years old here in London, there was a saying going around that was sort of new in my part of the world, which was, No real ministry happens until you've given the people six years of your life. You've got to give them some chance to trust you. So I thought, that makes sense. You know, I understand that because of a high level of trust required. So I just sort of settled down and thought, I'll certainly stay six years because that would be an investment in the good work that's ahead of me. And then, bit by bit, that six-year informal commitment became a long-term commitment as I laid down some ideals about what this church could experience if only they stayed at the same game. The church was 32 years old when I got there in 1984, and I was the ninth pastor in, which (laughs) means that there was a whole lot of transition, a whole lot of shifts in leadership focus as, you know, my eight predecessors all did their best to take the church where they thought it needed to go. So by the time I showed up, I was young and inexperienced, actually technically uneducated, and I found the church very confused. But no wonder, eight men, all very different from me, had had a year or a year and a half or two with them. And they didn't know who they were, they didn't know what kind of church they could be, and how could they know, because the leader kept changing. So I had this strong bias in the opposite direction, like it fit in with this new saying that you've got to give six years before they can trust you. 31 years, did you anticipate that? Yeah. In the first decade, I developed a 20-year plan. 
And that was for a couple of reasons. One, that I had some big ideas of what would take some time to accomplish. Also, that got me into my 50s, which at my age, in my early and mid-30s, seemed an impossible thing. I couldn't imagine being 50, so I didn't even plan it. But by the time I got to 50 and I was coming up to my 20th anniversary of the church, I realized I have no reason to voluntarily leave. This is something that might happen to me as the uh, the board of elders had the right to say, all right, enough of that. But they never did, and I never would because I thought, I've invested 20 years, and there is that level of trust. And I've taken ever so many families through ever so many difficult times. And, you know, they love me for that. They trust me for that. So I just sort of settled down and actually came up with another 20-year plan to make it 40 And then when I got to be in my 30th year at the church with a whole decade of ideas beyond that, I got sick. Mm -hmm. So it rounded off as 31 years, and that was two years ago that I stepped down. My guest today is Mike Wilkins, the former pastor of West London Alliance Church. Now, you were busy as a pastor, but you had a lot of other things on the go. You had three kids. What other Mm -hmm. kind of hobby-type things did you like to do? When I was healthy, what I loved to do most was uh, canoe tripping. I started with my son when he was eight. Eventually, it seemed safe to my wife to also go with me on a canoe trip. And uh, my daughters took turns. So for a while, I had one family member. Later on, I developed the whole thing into solo canoe tripping. And that was actually more of a passion because of the solitude and the opportunity it provides. Also, long-distance running. And I was a marathoner for many years. So far in your story, it's been relatively calm and normal. I mean, it's nice how God has led you and those things. But but you, you did have a lovely solo camping trip in 2011. That's right. The development of the annual solo canoe trip evolved into the season opener canoe trip. And I figured out how to read the internet and discover when the ice is out in the area I canoed, which is north of North Bay, the Tomogamy Provincial Park. From the time the ice sinks and the water's back, there's two weeks before the black flies come up. So I would plan to be away for five days in a three-week period, and I'd wait for the ice to go out, and then I'd skedaddle up and spend five days alone in this huge wilderness park that I had to myself. My purpose, my justification for it, was that I would use those five days in the spring to pray about and think through and decide upon what series I would preach for the church in the fall. And that turned out to be the last trip because I got sick after that. Now, what was that particular sermon series called? It was called Glory in the Face. It's based on the first few chapters of 2 Corinthians. Paul the Apostle writing more personally than we see him writing anywhere else. And a lot of the personal stuff is the anguish he has with the unruliness of the Corinthians. So my idea going to the park in the spring was I would like to bring the church family a series that showed how resilient Paul was. And the rationale was, in his language, the light of the gospel has shone in my heart in the face of Jesus Christ, which I think means and God has given me a very vibrant understanding of who Jesus is. And so the series was based on the idea that if you could learn to see the face of Christ, which really just means if you can see him in the Bible, if you can understand him from your Bible study, and you can open your heart to him, it's as good as being face-to-face with him. 
which is a metaphor at this point, but still it represents an intimate knowledge of Christ. And with that vision, with the face of Christ before you, you will be able to face anything. You had no idea that this would be a classic case of the preacher preaching to himself. (laughs) What did you go through shortly after that? So I did the solo canoe trip, and then I was diagnosed with actually not cancer, but a tumor in my head growing on my pituitary gland, which would need to be removed through what they thought were two surgeries. Seven and a half hours would be the first one. And I spent 2012 then getting the hang of living without a pituitary gland, which is tricky business because you can't (laughs) except with drugs. So 2012 was a whole year of recovering from this major seven and a half hour surgery, all the while I was saying to myself, well, at least that tumor wasn't cancer. And then at the end of that period, early in 2013, I was diagnosed with major stage four colorectal cancer. So there was a very large tumor and it was cancer. So that brought me up short. I was going to recover permanently from the pituitary surgery. It just took a year, but there was no recovering from this. I was initially pronounced stage four. It had already metastasized to the liver and given a year and a half to live. And again, what year was that? When that you was 2013. 2013. That's 2017 now. That year and a half. Yeah, I've been talked long, to the oncologist good. about that. <laughs> he said because I was so healthy before I got so sick. I handled the sickness better. And he's also noticed the attitude. My wife and I are not highly anxious. We're not very fearful. And we're not questioning how could this possibly happen to us. Why is that? Because we talked a little bit off air before, and you were explaining this as a pastor, what you and your wife did in your congregation. Yes, it's an occupational benefit to be diagnosed with something really sick if you've been spending decades looking after people who are very sick. The church family is very young, mostly young couples and young adults and so on. There's a big seniors group, but it's a lot of young people. So I didn't see a lot of death and a lot of funerals. But through the 30 years, there were certainly a dozen people or so who were just surprised beyond words to hear from the doctor that they had cancer. I had a real variety of opportunities. In some cases, I never managed to ease the cancer patient out of denial. So we could hardly talk about what was going on because he or she was so unable to cope with the idea that they were now in their dying stage of life, they didn't want to talk about it. But on the other hand, there were some brilliant examples of people who just said, you know, like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, I guess it's my time to die. And those people were hungry for help, and I was eager to give it because I wasn't able to give that kind of pastoral help to everybody. But I went over the same track so many times that by the time I was served notice that I was now very sick with a very serious cancer, I knew what to do because some of these people in my church had been such brilliant examples to me of faith under fire and trust in God anyway and leaving the future to Him and just trying to do well even if the call of God upon them is to die. So I knew kind of what to do, and in the same way, my wife, who often tagged along with me in these pastoral calls to very sick people, wasn't always cancer, but, you know, a lot of serious sickness, she had the same idea. This is what the person married to the sick guy or woman should be like. So we've always sort of had the path set out for us, and honestly, we're actually imitating certain people in the church some of whom were healed, some of whom recovered successfully, but other people who have now been dead for five or ten years, and we remember them, and they inspire us. What is your health like now? 
Well, uh, it was supposed to be a year and a half, and if they could squish six sessions of chemotherapy and surgeries, three surgeries, three chemos in the year and a half, assuming I could live a year and a half to receive the treatments, they thought there was a good chance of the cancer being beaten. So actually, the first two chemotherapies and the first two surgeries went so well, both the third and the third were canceled. And I came back to the church. I was in remission, but with a 50-50 chance of coming back. I had permission from my disability insurance provider to volunteer up to 49% of my job. So for a while, West London had a full-time volunteer senior pastor, and I was sharing the pulpit and sharing my duties with my associate pastor and so on. And then, true to prediction, cancer did come back in April 2015. So I served notice at that point to the board that I would stop trying to be a part-time volunteer and just step down so they could get on with the business of replacing me. And so that switch took place in the summer of 2015. You're still attending West London Lions? Yeah. Yeah. This was a very happy story. It's not the thing to do. For the 10 years I was going to be a pastor in his 60s, I had started at the age of 58 in an apprenticeship program where I would find a fellow who I thought could learn from me and give him the opportunity to share my pulpit. He would preach once a month, and I would evaluate him. I would preach three times a month, and he would evaluate me. He would attend staff meetings and board meetings, and then we would always debrief afterwards. And after two years, I would help him shop himself out to a church. So that happened exactly once in a row. And at the end of the two-year apprentice experience, I was shopping for a new guy. And a name was suggested to me, and I rejected it out of hand because I was looking for a 28-year-old who would shadow me for two years and be 30, like I was when I started. <laughs> and this fellow was 40. It wasn't oh, well. his idea. Somebody volunteered his name. But I took him out for coffee and learned that although uh, he was working as a high school teacher and loved it, he couldn't get away from the sense that God meant for him to be a pastor. And he would say to his wife, I mean, look at me getting up early in the morning studying all this theology. I can't stop. But there's no chance I'll ever be a pastor. I've waited too long. I've missed my opportunity. So I sit him down and say, would you like to have this experience? He knew my first apprentice real well and watched him over those two years. So he came back with the answer, yes, my wife and I would like to do that even if I go back to teaching high school at the end of the experience. And then during his two years, I got sicker and sicker. And he filled in. So when I stepped down, I announced my resignation to the elders in 2015. It was with the recommendation that they hire him on an interim basis, that is 12 months, to be the interim lead pastor. And that worked out beautifully. And five months into the 12-month contract, they tore it up and just hired him permanently. By then, the church was more used to him than to me. And I had no place to identify my successor and then train him, but that's what I did. So, you know, I'm very, very fond of him. I'm very, very happy with what is going on in the church. And I thought I knew enough about what not to do that I could behave myself. So I sit on the other side of the sanctuary where I've never used to sit, found that the people sitting over there are really nice people. <laughs> and I mind my own beeswax in regard to anything that anybody in the church wants to say to me of a comparative nature. But the church is a lovely group of people, and they don't do that. They just come over to my side after Sunday morning services and say, so how are you, Pastor Mike? <laughs> and I tell them I'm doing fine, thank you. So, yeah, we still attend, and it was important to me because I will leave my wife 
through death in the next couple of years. And she has a very strong support base of good friends and co-workers in the church. I didn't want her to abandon them, and they would not like it if she went somewhere else where they couldn't look after her. Now, you say presently you're living with cancer. You've kind of alluded to some of the stages of cancer, the whole denial, Mm. anger, and then acceptance. But now with cancer, there is a fight to survive, right? Mm -hmm. You got the news that this is incurable. Talk to us about acceptance at this stage. And I guess what I'm thinking is, have you given up? No, I'm certainly comfortable with the idea that this will probably kill me. But it was supposed to have done that years ago. I'm taking chemotherapy. I sit for a session in the cancer clinic here at Victoria Hospital once every three weeks. The chemo does its thing. I have a few days of feeling kind of lousy. And then I start to feel sort of normal until I go back and do it again. This is the first type of chemo I received way back at the beginning. And my cancer evidently is not the smartest cancer. It can't figure out how to defeat the chemo. So I've been assured eventually it will catch on. It's sort of a remedial student as diseases go, but the, <laughs> the cancer will figure out how to defeat the chemo. And then there's a couple of other chemos they think I'll try, and we'll see how I do with them. But I've done really well with this, and so I'm in a holding pattern. And there's some possibility that I will beat all the odds, get past five years, even get into seven or eight years. But There's also a possibility at any point that everything's going to go south really quickly. My routine then is chemo every three weeks. And then about every three or four months, some side effect thing kicks up. And it's just possible that something that's a side effect will kill me, not the cancer. And my wife and I are really cool with that because it would be better to just have a sudden heart attack and be gone than to slowly be consumed by the cancer. But we really have a sense that this was the new assignment. And once I die, Deb will have yet another assignment of being a terrific widow, godly person. Meanwhile, my job is to tolerate this and to find the peace and the joy of the Lord, to be strengthened by it, and to find the faithfulness of God strong enough that I can face all this. Like most of us, you probably figured you'd have a normal retirement. And someday down the road, when you're old, then you die. Now, it appears this will not be your story, as you're Mm. saying. Do you grieve the loss of years and activities here on Earth? Well, I more often get asked if I miss being a pastor. And what I say is I miss it very much, but that's in the context of missing so many things, even frivolous things like canoe trips and long-distance running. I just have this massive admiration for the goodness of God in the fact that everything I miss, I got to do for 30 years. And I didn't waste that time. I ran a lot of marathons. I canoed a lot of canoe trips. And, you know, more seriously, I preached a lot of sermons. I mentored a lot of people. So I've had a lion's share of all those privileges. And now I just sit around unable to do any of them, missing them. And I kind of feel like so be it. That's the story. Do without things that God has given me. See if I can just be satisfied with God himself. I know what that looks like from the example set before me. So that's what I'm busy trying to do. You've talked very openly and candidly about dying. I've Mm. sat here on this side of the mic with a smile on my face half of this interview (laughs) because you have such a fun way of saying things. Mm. But when you think about dying, are you ever scared? No. You know, I've seen the champions of the cancer subgroup of the church just go real well into it. 
My uh, daughter, coincidentally, if ever th there was a coincidence, uh, has been working on the oncology floor since she graduated from Western in 2008. So whenever I crash and have to go to the hospital, I'm on her floor, the oncology floor. And they treat me like a celebrity because I'm Joanna's father. And she says what she's learned over all the years with cancer patients, if they can just accept it rather than refuse to accept it, we can keep them comfortable. But the only people who die really badly on our floor are people who are in absolute denial or maybe it's their family that's in denial and refuse to let them die. No DNR, no do not resuscitate. She said at that point it can be really grisly. So we're not expecting that. I've had a number of brushes with death through those every three or four months. I have to go to the hospital for a few days. So we've sort of dress rehearsaled over and over again. We're just living day to day, enjoying the days that we have, my wife and I particularly, and then wait to see. No, no fear, just faith. And this is the thing. It's the goodness of God. You know, he's with us. He planned this. This is not an accident that he apologizes for. This is a changed assignment. I wanted to spend my 60s pastoring the church and apprenticing others. That was my plan until I was 70. And I'm not going to get to 70, but I have a new assignment. It's to die well. We want to go back to where we started, that you've been writing some blogs and books. Mm. Can you just give us a website where people can find these things? Yeah, the website is wlachurch.org. That's the church website. West London Alliance is wlachurch.org. I had a blog since the website started. And when I got sick and so many people were alarmed, I began to blog about my health. And so there are still on the church website blogs from when I was first diagnosed with the pituitary thing to very recently. But I did come home from that canoe trip in the spring and preach it as a series in the fall. And then when the cancer got to be too much for me to keep working, I wrote the sermon series into a book called Glory in the Face. So I have just very recently abandoned the church website. All the health-related blog posts are there, and they will stay there for anybody who wants to read the whole step-by-step -step experience. But I have a website called gloryintheface.com, and Glory in the Face is spelled as one word. It's sort of like a scrapbook about the book. So the sermon series being what it was, the book is more of a Bible study than the story of a guy with cancer. So the church blog is the story of me with cancer, and the book is a story of how to know the face of Christ so that you can face anything. There's little snippets of my cancer experience. Uh, so uh, this blog is easy to find, gloryintheface.com, and the book itself can be ordered in Kindle or Kobo or in paperback from the website. Pastor Mike Wilkins, it has been a joy having you in our studios today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I think you've infused someone listening today with courage. Well, thank you very much, and may that be true. You've been listening to Conversations, heard every Friday at 7 p.m. and again Sunday afternoons at 1.30 here on Faith FM. To hear past Conversations programs, visit our website at london.faithfm.org. The show's producer and editor is Dave Wetlofer.
Well, I hoped you enjoyed hearing a little bit about Mike Wilkins. He is an author, as you heard. Uh, Glory in the Face is his first book, kind of about uh, glorifying God through the difficult circumstances in our lives, his battle with cancer. He also just actually, the week of his passing, published another book called 444. And I would encourage you to grab that book as well. It talks a lot about his life and his ministry and uh, some of the things that he learned over his 30 years in pastoral ministry. So I hope you enjoyed it. And again, we'll see you next week. And until then, thanks for joining the rebellion. <laughs>